Amen. Thank you so much, guys, and thank you for being here today. We are grateful for your presence in God's house. We're grateful for our big Honduras team that just got back a couple of days ago and all the hard work they did while there. We have a student team that'll be going back. We have a number of trips upcoming. You'll hear from one of our newest pastors, Pastor Nick, in a moment. But uh, before we jump in today, we have deacons at all the doors. Did anybody miss your little um, elements cup? So it'll have the bread at one side and juice to the other. If you are planning on taking the Lord's Supper with us today, uh, we would love for you to have this. So if you missed it, uh, just slip your hand up. Would you do that? Deacons are ready to serve you. And thank you men for serving so well today. And uh, thank you to the team for getting all of that ready. We started using these as a COVID protocol and come to find out we kind of like them. It's um, much more sanitary than passing a bunch of bread and juice down the row. And um, we're not Catholic and drinking out of the same cup anyway, praise God. So we're, uh, we, this is a good sanitary way to do it. It's not going to fill you up, but at least they're easy to open. So we'll get that to you. We do have a little bit of a medical situation in the back. I know you've seen a number of our guys sort of moving swiftly through the room. Don't be weirded out. It was someone that needed some medical attention, and they're getting that. If by chance my microphone were to glitch at all, um, we do have some issues sometimes when we call medical personnel in, ambulances. The frequencies sometimes do funny things. So if you're watching or listening, just be patient with us. Our guys will work hard to keep all of this streaming and going out, and so we'll be uh, in prayer. I think everything's going to be okay. They're getting checked in the back. So we're in Hebrews 12 again, and I'm going to be very frank with you guys. When I started this book in 22, I was already dreading sections like this because it always struck me as very difficult to unpack. Now, through recent study, God's totally changed my mind, and this has quickly become one of my favorite passages in the entire book of Hebrews. It's amazing how you can read something, read something, read something, it just doesn't click. And then finally, the Holy Spirit gives you exactly what you need, and I'll explain a little bit more of that in, in just a moment. I'll explain my process to you in in going before the Lord and then writing these messages. But I want us to do our verse together because this verse is so critical, not only to this chapter, but to all of our faith. And it's really comparing what the Lord has gone through with us when we get weary or discouraged. And so let's say it aloud, then we're gonna put a bunch of blanks in it, okay? Many of you by now have it. Let's say it. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Good. I want you to think about Jesus. He was treated far worse than any of us. And if we'll think about what he was willing to go through and how he endured, we can have strength for our own journey. So let's take a, a, a lot of those words out and let's say it again. You ready? For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Yeah, we don't want you to be weary or discouraged and we want you to know. We had a baptism in the first service with a video. And the sweet lady who was sharing, um, she uh, was telling us, I, I think she might have been in her 50s, uh, maybe 60s, but maybe 50s, but she was sharing with us that she'd walked an aisle as a little girl and she just always had doubt and she never knew. And last month, she came forward at the end of a service, talked to our women's ministry director, Desiree Lowe, who led her to assurance of her salvation and she said, now I have peace, now I know that I know that I know. And she was talking about how the Lord has just so blessed her in this and she wanted to follow through with believers baptism and we celebrated that in the, in the first hour. And I thought, Lord, I don't want anybody in this place to ever leave or anybody listening or watching to ever walk away without knowing that you know that you know. And today for you, I hope this is that day it's a special day around the Lord's table. It's a special day to reflect on his sacrifice. I would remind you where we've been at the beginning of the chapter. I gave you a message called endure, encouragement to endure. And then a few weeks ago, don't despise discipline. Then last week, run the right way. So you hear the themes. We're going to be moving forward. But on the journey, sometimes there's discipline or course correction. But, but run the right way. Do the right things. Run your lane, your race the right way. And today, 
going to alliterate a little more, but we're going to talk about the man in the middle. The man in the middle. I almost titled this message, Who's Your Mediator? Because I want you to hear me well. Every honest person knows you need one. If the creator of all things and all mankind is perfect and holy, and we know that he is according to the scripture, if he never, ever, ever makes a mistake, messes up, and he expects holiness in his presence, we know, honest people know, none of us qualify. Honest people know we've fallen short. Honest people know that we cannot get to God, and so we put someone or something in the middle. We always do. The question is, who or what is in the middle? Who or what are you trusting to bridge the gap between you and God? Because here's the deal. We're not good getting better. We're bad getting worse. And I mean that in, in a way that says, biblically speaking, when we look at how humanity's doing, we are sliding further and faster away from the Lord. We're not all just turning and running to God. Now, I pray that in revival and awakening, we do have a mass turn and run to God. But who's in the middle? So it could be works. I try to let my good outweigh my bad. It could be the law. I keep the Ten Commandments. It could be money. I try to give a lot. I try to do a lot for the church. Or it could be your religion. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. I'm a this. I'm a that. Of course, I'm right with God. My church is in the middle. My church membership is in the middle. My pastor, my priest is in the middle. My lineage. Grandpa was a deacon. Dad founded the church. Or it could be the best and in reality the only answer. Jesus is in the middle. The Son of God, God the Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He's my mediator. He's my middle man. He's the one who has a hand on God and a hand on me. He's the bridge. He's the connection. He's the only way. Could be that. I hope it's that. In the process of preparing messages, I have a, a pretty um, standard system that I have used for many, many, many years. It works for me. It's how God really inspires me. When I'm preaching through a book and I'm studying that text, I like to read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. I'll read it in many English translations, 23 to 26 normally. I'll read it in the original language and try to break apart the words as best I can. So I'll read it in the, this case, the Greek Old Testament, the Hebrew, and before I read anybody's commentary, I typically don't, I, I basically never watch other sermons on it. I'm afraid I'll preach their message. Um, and God didn't call me to be an echo, called me to be a voice. So I don't wanna preach another man's message. Um, although I have over time taken a few points from people and I'll try to always credit them for that, but they're very few and far between. So what I do is really try to say, Lord, what are you saying here? Can you reveal a couple of key truths, and what you have are your grace notes. That's what I'm talking about. And I say a couple of key truths. Lord, can you help me simplify and unpack this text and give me a couple of points, questions, ideas to put on paper? And then once I do all of that and I have all the skeleton, I try to add as much muscle and flesh as possible. I think of illustrations and other things, but then I'll get into commentaries. I'll read what others smarter than me have said before me. I'll try to read and study what great um, biblical pastors and scholars and writers have said. It could be commentaries, books, articles, and I'll compile those things, and then I'll digitally highlight them, and then I'll compile that. And what I discovered is I was lost on this text. And I almost cracked open some commentaries first, and I'm so glad I waited because come Monday morning, I still didn't have my main points. And I thought, Lord, I got to be able to understand this. And it was like, finally, after I don't know how many times I went through this little section, finally, God said, you are overcomplicating something I made really simple here. Now, look, here's this option and here's this option. Tell the people, choose this or choose this, but make your choice. And when that came on, like if you've ever seen the cartoons where the light bulb goes on, I had a little party in my office. They probably thought I went a little Pentecostal. I was rejoicing because I thought, oh, that which I was dreading that was so complicated is actually really quite straightforward and, and pretty simple. But it doesn't mean the text just leaps out at you and you go, oh, well, okay, that makes perfect sense. And you may be much smarter than me and more attuned than me. But when I first read it and read it and read it and read it, this was tough. So just hang with me, and I promise you by the end, it'll be simple. And I, I promise you by the end, if you're paying attention and I don't lose you, and you don't you know, 
tune me out and put in your earbuds or whatever, I promise you, you'll get this. And I promise you the Lord can use it to encourage you and encourage somebody you know that needs him. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. And let's start at 18, Hebrews 12, 18, and I'm going to go to 24, okay? And I almost went to the end, but I didn't want to give too much because we have communion. So it says this. Now, remember, we're coming out of run the right way. Don't be like Esau. Don't give up so much for so little. Run with endurance and righteousness and do it God's way. And then he says, for you, meaning those who claim Christ who have come out of Judaism into Christianity, or today for you who claim to be followers of Jesus, you have not come to the mountain that may not be touched, meaning you've come, you know, you've not come there. There's a real mountain and it could have been touched and it burned with fire and it was blackness and darkness and tempest and there was the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. But they couldn't endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And this is all way back into Exodus and some in Deuteronomy. So you really got to understand what was being taught there. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, oh, okay, now I've got context. Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. That's one way. You've not come to that mountain Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, we just sang about them, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. I love that phrase. There's a role in heaven and those in Christ are on that role. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. You, not, you are not perfect, but through Christ you are made perfect. And then it gets very specific to Jesus, you. You haven't come to this mountain over here, but you've come to this heavenly place over here and you've ultimately come to Jesus, not Moses, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Heavenly Father, thank you for some just insight and truth in this text. It, it appears to be kind of awkward and difficult, but I think when we break it down into the comparison, it's actually quite simple, and I believe that you want us to get back to the basics here and make sure that every person that would hear this word would know that they know that they know and not desire to revert back to a system of works or law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you and be seated. So I'm gonna ask you two questions today and then we're gonna unpack that and you and the Holy Spirit are the only ones who can actually answer this for yourself. The first question is this, is your man in the middle on Mount Sinai? Who or what is between you and God and are they located on Mount Sinai? And of course that's representative of law and works because Mount Sinai is a mountain that could have been touched, but when the Hebrews were released from Egyptian slavery, we'll be there in a couple of weeks, a big group of us are going to Egypt, and when we follow that route, and when we see, they went into the wilderness, and they ended up at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God would reveal himself to the people, and then specifically to Moses. The mountain could physically be touched, but in the context, he's saying, you and your beasts, your animals, shouldn't touch it. What did God inscribe, by the way, when Moses went up Mount Sinai, he ended up doing it twice because Moses broke the tablets in anger at the golden calf incident, but what did God inscribe on front and back of those stone tablets? What, what did he give Moses, church? Good, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, right? He gave Moses the Ten Commandments up there, and so it is a representation, that mountain, Mount Sinai, um, and, and clearly we know from the way it's described, and when we look back to Exodus and Deuteronomy, we know that it's talking about that mountain. When God spoke, he most often spoke directly to, to Moses, but there was a particular day that he spoke to the whole congregation of Israel. And the purpose for God speaking to them that day is expressed in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4.10, Exodus 20.20. And God said, I will make them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days they shall live upon the earth. So few people talk about the fear of the Lord. 
But what he's saying is, I want these people to know I am a holy God. I want them to revere me, to respect me, to understand that I am transcendent. I am holy other than them. And I'll tell you how I'm going to show them. I'm going to shake this mountain. I'm going to bring in the cloud and I'm going to bring in the fire. And I'm going to tell them, not only must you keep yourself from approaching and touching willy-nilly, you've got to keep your animals back. You've got to go back to Genesis 1 and you've got to have dominion over your animals because even if they touch the mountain, they will die. I am that holy. And so I'm going to give you a warning from heaven. I'm going to blow the trumpet. It is an authoritative command. My words, my trumpet, my smoke, my tempest cannot be ignored. And the people were going, oh Lord, stop. It's too much for us. God, it's too much for us. Give us a mediator. Give us someone that can be a go-between. And of course, God had called Moses to that very task. He would also use men like Aaron and others, Moses' brother. But God communicated in such a way that it reminded the people of their unworthiness to approach his presence. The glory of the experience was overwhelming. And so God is showing this law will separate us And yet we find in the New Testament that the gospel unites us. One is an unapproachable God and the other becomes approachable with great confidence, Hebrews 4.16 says. But it's still the same God. It's still the God of the Bible. Craig Keener, he is a professor of biblical studies and author. He writes this. In Exodus 20, 18 to 21, when God had given the Ten Commandments, the people became afraid of God's awesome holiness. They wanted Moses to mediate for them, fearing that if God spoke directly to them, they would die, for God is a consuming fire. And you say, yeah, pastor, but that's the God of the Old Testament. All that old wrath and judgment and holiness stuff. I like to listen to those guys who say, unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Let's just focus on the good stuff. You know, Jesus gets us after all. Let's just focus on that. Let me tell you right now, if you hear a pastor that won't preach the Old Testament and talk about the Old Testament, that pastor is likely a heretic and a blasphemer. You ought to stop listening to him because the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is also a consuming fire. You say, how do you know? your Bible's still open, look at the last verse of Hebrews 12. Look down at it. Look down at it. The last verse of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 29 says what, church? For our God is a... He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the God of the old is the God of the new. But what we have misunderstood is law, works, grace, faith, gospel. We've tried to separate and bifurcate that which God actually has perfectly united in his heart and in his message. But God's purpose was to scare enough sense into these people to get them to stop sinning. Now listen to me. God's purpose was to scare enough sense into these people to get them to stop sinning. And if we have to come back into the God of judgment and wrath and righteousness to scare you enough to stop sinning, good. Moses himself said in 21, I am terrified and I am trembling. He's referring to Deuteronomy 9, 19, where he expresses God's holy presence. And when you're in the presence of God, there is trembling. But remember the meta-narrative of Hebrews. Remember the big story. Jews coming out of Judaism, it had been highly persecuted, as it has pretty much always been throughout human history. But they would come into Christianity, and now the target had moved from the Jews to the early Christians. And some of these who claimed Christ or were on the edge of trusting Christ were in danger of going back to the rites and the rituals and the Mosaic law and the sacrifices and all of those things. And the writers pleading with them, don't go back to Moses. You have Jesus. You have a better mediator, a new covenant. You don't need the blood of animals. You have the blood of the spotless lamb. Don't go back. Don't go back. And you say, Pastor, I've heard you say that, but we're not going to go back. I'm not going to sacrifice animals. Well, you might not go back to Leviticus, but we often go back to our works. We often go back to our own merits and goodness. You know, over the years, I've learned a bunch of different evangelistic methodologies. It was my specialty area in my PhD work. And one of my favorites came out of a ministry out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida with D. James Kennedy called Evangelism Explosion. Many of you have been trained in that. Uh, the Baptist version became CWT, a little less popular, but very similar. And in the two diagnostic questions, you would say to someone, do you know for certain if you die today, you'd go to heaven? 
The vast majority of people, regardless of background, will say, well, yeah, I think so. I hope so. I want to, blah, 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 blah. Most will say, yeah. But the second diagnostic question is more interesting, and it's a variation of this. Suppose you're standing before the Lord, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What is your reply? Now, I think I've heard about everything under the sun. I'm a good person. My good outweighs my bad. I'm I'm a member of this church. I've been a Christian my whole life. Anybody in this room that believes that that could be a true statement doesn't know the gospel. You cannot be a Christian your whole life. It doesn't work that way. You're not born into the kingdom. To be born into the kingdom, you must be born again. Follow me? And so I've heard all manner of answers. Well, my papa was a deacon in the church. <laughs> whoop de doo I hope he was saved. My dad started the church. Maybe even I've served in missions and I've done this and I've done that and I, 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 I. It's a big problem with that. The law of God was primarily given to us to show us who he is and in light of that who we are. It was never given to make us try harder to be a better person or get there by works. The law is a revealer of how how short we fall. Finish this phrase from Romans 3.10. None is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. All we like sheep have gone. Everyone has turned to his own way. Good news, God has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Some of you are visual learners. I consider myself one of those. And so I want to give you an illustration now. Everybody's going to know what this is. It's not like the one from Snow White. It is not magical. I'm not going to ask it for anything. I'm simply going to put it up here. And what do we have? A simple little mirror. What is the mirror good for? It's good to reflect. It's good to reveal. I want you to think about the law and what we got at Mount Sinai this way. It first reflected the perfection and holiness of God. God gave the 10 commandments. Now listen, we can't even keep the 10. I promise you, we can't even keep the 10 because as a man thinks, so is he. So even in your mind, we can't keep those. But then there are many, 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 many more that are articulated and the law reveals, wow, he is perfect and holy. But what does it do about it? nothing. It's like if you go have a delicious meal and you get a big hunk of broccoli stuck right here and then maybe you enjoyed a steak and you have half a macerated cow stuck over here. And maybe the person you're with doesn't love you enough to tell you, hey man, clean your teeth. You should love people enough to tell them things like that. But you go to the bathroom and you're washing your hands, maybe you're on a big hot date and all of a sudden you look and you go, ah, why didn't they tell me? What would you say, mirror, mirror, or magic mirror on the wall? What would you ask for the mirror to take it out? No, you clean your stinking teeth, would you not? You'd pull out the broccoli stalk and the half macerated cow, and you'd say, okay, the mirror showed me the problem. Did the mirror fix the problem? The law of God is a mirror to your soul, a schoolmaster, a tutor, a revealer. It reflects the glory of God and reveals the fact that we aren't going to fix it on our own. In fact, the more you try to fix it on your own, the more frustrated you're gonna be and the more you know that the, re- the revelation that comes from the law of God shows you how short you fall. And so what I wanna remind you of is that too many people are thinking, if I'll just do this, I'll be ready to be right with God. If I'll just fix this, notice I'm saying a lot of first-person pronouns. The first-person pronouns will never get you there, and I'll explain that before the end of the message today. The gospel is more of a thermostat. The law is simply a thermometer. You remember that? The law shows, Mount Sinai reveals this is our temperature. This is our spiritual gauge. It doesn't change it. You need something to change it. And so when we come back to this, is your man on the middle of Mount Sinai? Some of you guys, I guarantee it. Some of you are relying on a decision made in the past, a card signed, a wet experience, 
but in your heart of hearts, you've doubted whether you're right with God for a long, long time. My goal today is not to make you doubt further. My goal is to get you to nail it down. My goal is to get you to know that you know that you know and be certain that you're not trusting in Mount Sinai. Rather, is your man in the middle on Mount Zion. You see, from 22 to 24, Mount Zion doesn't just represent the old law. Mount Zion represents the gospel and grace. I could have said grace and faith or gospel and faith, but I'm going to use gospel and grace. Now, you can't live on both mountains. You can't have a foot on Sinai and a foot on Zion. I'm not saying, folks, that Jesus came to abolish the law. He did not abolish the law. The moral law still stands because it is to uh, make us righteous before God in the sense that because the Lord changes us, now we have a desire to keep his word and way. We want to be different, but Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't think anything goes. I can do anything now. No, remember this. The text is teaching you, Christian, it says it right there, 22 and following, you, believer, have come first to Mount Zion. I'll explain what Mount Zion is. Two, you've come to the church, to the called out ones, the ecclesia, combination of two words, kaleo and ex, where we get the word exit, ecclesia. And you are the called out ones, the assembled, gathered saints of God. You don't have to be Catholic to be a saint. You have to trust Jesus to be a saint. And so you are the called out ones of God and you've come specifically to the mediator of a new and better covenant to Jesus Christ. What does it mean when it says he's a mediator? The Greek word there, Mesites means a go-between, an intermediary between two parties. Now, the New Testament described Moses as a mediator between God and the people of Israel. And so what he did was he spoke from God to the people on their expectations. He spoke from the people to God on how they chose and wanted to communicate with him. But he always fell short. He himself couldn't even enter the promised land. But Jesus is a new and better mediator of the new covenant. It's established through his death, not just his leadership. It was through the shedding of his own blood, not the blood of another animal, but the, the blood of the spotless lamb of God. And then when Jesus rose and ministered on this earth some 40 days before ascending, he commissioned you and me and every follower who would ever be to go and to share that good news, to tell it in word and deed, to teach the oracles of God, to teach people who God is and what we're to do and how we're to live. Not to be right with God, but because God has changed us and is changing us. And he said, I want you to teach him. I want you to baptize him. And I want you to do it near and far. I want you to do it everywhere. Because this mediator sits on Mount Zion. Now, what is Mount Zion? Specifically, the earthly Mount Zion is one of two hills around Jerusalem, ancient and modern Jerusalem. It's where David won a war against the Jebusites and took control of this particular site. The people of God messed up greatly. David actually messed up greatly, and, and the people would suffer for that, and he would end up uh, establishing amount of sacrifice, amount on top of the mountain, a flat area of sacrifice that would later have the temple, another temple, and it would be a place where eventually the holy of holies, the meeting place of God would sit. You could call it Mount Zion today. It is still Mount Zion today. It would be outside of the current city of Jerusalem, but it would be in the ancient Davidic city. But the, the text is not speaking of let's go to the holy land and see that mountain. No, no, no. The text, if we're careful, says we're not talking about a mountain made with hands anymore. You can still go visit Mount Sinai. But now you've come to Mount Sinai, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. Those things were just foreshadows on the earth. You've now come into the heavenly halls with innumerable company of angels, a general assembly, or literally in the Greek, the festal gathering, this wonderfully exuberant party of worshipers. You've come to the church of the firstborn, the ecclesia of those born in Christ who are registered in heaven. You've come to God the judge. You've come to the one who makes men just. They are not just. He declares them just. That's justification. You've come to Jesus, the mediator in this heavenly hall. See, ceremonial provisions of the old covenant were temporary. 
Animal sacrifices had to happen over and over and over. Yesterday's sacrifice was inadequate. Therefore, tomorrow's sacrifice was inevitable. And it happened again and again and again. Gallon upon gallon of blood spilled. Because I always try to say this on Lord's Supper Day. Guys, animal blood will never take away human sin. It was a covering. It was temporary. A band-aid at best. A foreshadowing to say the one spotless lamb will come. He will pay the price for you. And it's crystal clear that in the new covenant, it's eternal. The old covenant would pass away, but the new covenant in Christ's blood will be eternal. You'll have this innumerable company of angels celebrating and worshiping. And what he's talking about with this, those registered in heaven statement, he's talking about those who have been born again. I, you know, I, I grew up in a tiny town, a town of about a 1,000 in rural North Carolina. And one of my favorite hymns growing up, I could understand it. I understood it because it was written in my kind of language. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And the morning breaks eternal, bright and fair. When the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore. Anybody else heard that? And the roll is called up. Yonder, man, that's my language. When the roll is called up, yonder I'll be there. When the roll is called up, yonder. Do y'all know that? And then the bass is great. When the roll is called up, yonder I'll be there. Why don't we do that, Jeff? We got to do that. When the roll is called up, yonder. When the roll is called up, yonder I'll be there. You say, Pastor, where's yonder? If you're from the country, you know where yonder is. It's right through that holler and over that berm. That's yonder, right over there. It's where the Lord is. Could you this morning sing that great old hymn with confidence? It might be near about 100 years old, but it's spot on. Could you sing with confidence that when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. I'll be on that roll. Not because I'm a good guy and deserve to be there. See, no, 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 no. That's Mount Sinai thinking. I'll be there because of the man on Mount Zion, the man who sits at the right hand of God Almighty in the throne room in the heavenly Jerusalem. I'll be there because of him, mediator, my man in the middle, my God man. Confronted with God as judge, Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, trembled with fear. But when we see Jesus as the covenant, as the mediator of the new covenant, we come with confidence. Now look, he's, Jesus is 100% God. Don't you come to him flippantly. But Jesus is simultaneously 100% man. You can come to him because he has open arms to receive you. He was tempted as you and me in every way and even greater without sin. You say, how could he be tempted in a greater way than me? What if you had a temptation that you would never succumb to? I would argue the temptation gets harder. If you never, ever, ever succumb to the temptation when Jesus kept getting hit and hit and hit and would never succumb. But you see what happens here, verse 23 into 24, it says God's this judge and then we come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling, that means his blood that was shed for us and it speaks better things than that of Abel. What does that mean? Well, at first when I read that, I thought it meant this. And only about one or two other lead pastors and, and commentators that I read their writings about this, only a couple agreed with this assessment. It could have been that Abel's sacrifice, remember he made a blood sacrifice, it was accepted before God, but it was temporary. But when you unpack, and that could be what it means, it means Jesus' blood is eternal, Abel's sacrifice was temporary. But the Greek actually points in a slightly different direction. It actually means the blood of Abel himself. Now think about this, if you know why Jesus died and you know that you can come to him by grace through faith, his blood is a beautiful, wonderful invitation. But the blood of Abel cried out judgment, vengeance, anger, and wrath. Think about this for a minute. The blood of Abel was unlike the blood of Jesus. Abel's blood made Cain guilty. And it, drew, and it drove him away in despair. But Christ's blood brings us into full fellowship. And his blood is so much better than the blood of Abel. Yes, it's true it's better than Abel's sacrifice as well, but it's better in every way. 
And as I was processing this message, and I hope it's making sense to you, you're either trusting in law and works and mosaic type stuff at Sinai, or you're trusting in grace and faith and gospel type stuff that we see in Jesus and the heavenly Jerusalem, Zion. And I could not help but go back to a very popular clip. I seem to find myself watching it just every few months. It's an incredible clip. It went viral a few years ago after Pastor Alistair Begg, a Scottish pastor, longtime lead pastor of Parkside Church in Ohio, was preaching on it. Now, I realize you don't need to email me about him. He's in a current controversy. If you want my opinion, I disagree with his stance on some of the LGBTQ issues as of late. However, he was perfectly right in this clip. And he said it in such an interesting way. I just want to take two minutes as we get ready to transition to take communion together. And I want you, if you've never heard it, you're going to be richly blessed. If you've heard it, you'll be blessed again. I want you to hear from Pastor Alistair Begg about what we've been talking about today. If you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it, in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. What an immense, I can't can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you 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 were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it, you made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we just a few questions for you, first of all. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. <laughs> now, now, that's the... That is the only answer. The man on the middle cross said I could come. What kind of works had that guy done? How many times had he received his perfect attendance pin for his Sunday school class? How many church roles had he been on? And yet when he cried out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, verily, verily, or amen, amen. Today I tell you, you'll be with me in paradise. Today I tell you, behold, listen up, bub, pay attention. The guy on the other side doesn't get there. But both were equally rotten to the core. But we have a savior who changes out your core. What are you doing here? He said, I could come. And that's the answer. So you're standing before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Anything that starts in the first person will be wrong. The first person singular I won't get you there. But if you go to he, he died for me. He was the perfect sacrifice. He said that if I would believe, I could receive. He made the way. His sacrifice was perfect. His way is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by him. And so, he has made a way for me to be here today. Is your man on the middle on Mount Sinai? 
you can answer that question if you're honest. Is your man on the middle, in the middle on Mount Zion? Where is your faith pointed today? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, the Bible tells us to take a few moments for examination before we partake of the bread and the cup. And when we think about what we're learning with Jesus' blood being in a better and new covenant, there's anything wayward in your heart today, would you confess it before God? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Would you do that right now? And if you were a born-again baptized believer in the room or maybe watching, we encourage you to get your elements and partake with us. But if you don't know that you know that you know, then absolutely do not eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Let the Holy Spirit shine his perfect piercing light into every nook and cranny of your life and make sure you know where your trust, your faith is grounded. Father, search us and know us. And may we partake these moments in a worthy manner, not because of self-worth, Because of Christ who lives in us, the hope of glory. In his name we ask this, amen. We now come to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, given to us to celebrate the memory of Jesus' broken body and shed blood. It's said on the night before he was betrayed at the conclusion of the feast of the Passover, which he and his disciples were eating that he took the bread and having blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. I like to show you these images of unleavened bread or matzah because I want you to understand that unleavened bread from the time it was instituted at the Passover of Exodus 12 until today has a very similar characteristic. It generally has piercings or holes in it. It typically has darker patches or bruised marks, and it would have almost, you you may say, striping across it in the way it was quickly prepared because God was about to deliver the people. You don't even have time to add yeast to your bread. It will be flat. Get ready to see my deliverance. But imagine when Jesus held this up in those young 33-and-a-half-year-old hands and said, this is my body, broken for you. Imagine that maybe those disciples, if they knew some of Isaiah, the great prophet's words about the Messiah, maybe some of those disciples would have remembered that the Messiah said he would be pierced, wounded for our transgressions. The Messiah said he would be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, but for the Messiah, by his stripes, we will be healed. Imagine if you're there in that upper room, but we have it better. He said, Pastor, no way. If I was there, I would believe. If I was there, I would have no doubts. Oh, really, Thomas, Peter, and the gang. If you were there, you would have done just what I would have done. You would have gone running off like a coward. Let's be honest. You knew how brutal the Romans were. You knew what Jesus was about to face. You would have denied him too. Man, I deny him here sometimes. I deny him in a world that's not about to nail me to anything. But Jesus said, this is my body. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son. And Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to come to take the nails that belonged in my hands the thorns that belonged in my brow. Thank you for being the perfect substitutionary sacrifice to bring deliverance, atonement for sin, to be the perfect mediator between a holy God and a sinful man and sinful mankind. Thank you for having your body broken that ours may be made whole. In Jesus' name, I lift this prayer. Amen. He said, this is my body and it is broken for you. If you'll take your chalice cup and reveal the bread, 
the Gospel of John in chapter 6, Jesus was making a comparison to how God fed his people all throughout the 40 years of wilderness wandering. And he was comparing the manna that came down out of heaven to sustain him with his own body. It was a precursor, a foreshadowing of what he would do at the Lord's table and what he would ultimately do at Calvary. But talking about his own body, Jesus said this, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, but he that eateth this bread shall live forever. On that same night when our Lord was betrayed, he took the cup. Having blessed it, he then gave it to his disciples and he said, This is my blood which is shed for you. Heavenly Father, not only do we thank you for sending Jesus, and Jesus, not only do we thank you for being willing to take the lashes and bruises and piercings that belonged in us, but thank you for shedding your blood in our place. It's nothing we've done the suffering of you, the Son. Thank you, Lord, for shedding this blood that brings us hope and glory. And the world may look at it as barbaric, but we see it as beautiful. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. We read in Hebrews 9, 22, according to the law, I may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, no remission. We also read in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Bible says that they sang a hymn on that night when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and then they went out. As Jeff comes up to join me today, I was reminded of one of my favorite gospel songs. Don't play just yet, Jeff. I wanna wanna do one little thing with this. Cindy used to bless our churches uh, many times over. She would be the soloist on this with our choir singing backup. I know it came out years ago, but I think the lyric holds such truth, and she used to really bless me when she would sing. And it was about that thief on the cross. You've heard maybe this song, condemned to die on a cross for crimes he had done. He was guilty, everyone could see. But his destiny was changed when he looked at Christ and said, when your kingdom comes, remember me. In paradise that day he stood, Just like the Lord had said he would, surrounded by those who had gone before. And one said, friend, how did you come? What are the deeds that you had done? With tears in his eyes, I could hear him reply, there are no merits to my name, no works that I can claim, but he who brought me here told me to say, and I could hear her voice much better than mine. She'd sing, I have come by the way of the cross. I have come by the way of the cross. It is nothing I have done. It's the suffering of God's Son. I have come by the way of the cross. And I would wonder if we were to be asked, how is it that you would have entrance into the presence of a holy, righteous, perfect God? I would hope Your one and only answer is the man in the middle. He said, I could come. Stand with me this morning. Now I know good and well, one thing I am certain of this morning is in a room with this many people and surely with those many, many more tuned in, Somebody is plagued by doubt. 
somebody is plagued by lack of peace. And if I were to say, do you know that you know that you know, you could not with honesty say, pastor, I know, I know when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. You think so, you hope so, you wish, but you just don't know. Now look, there are men and women up here trained and gifted to share the truth of the word with you and you've heard it today. You can nail it down today. Come and be sure of your salvation today. I would beg you, don't walk away in doubt. But, but, but what would people think of me? Who cares? What does God think? Be sure of your salvation. Some of you today, you are absolutely sold out certain. I am going because of what Jesus did to tell us die. It is paid in full and I am on my way. But you know somebody who isn't. You must love them enough to continually bring them before God Almighty. But, but I've been up there before. I've prayed for them before. I've shared with them before. Good, let's do it again. Let's do it again. If God's put them on your heart, let's go. Let's get them again. And some of you today, you're just thankful. Just grateful. Man, God has been so good. I get to remember what he's done. I mean, we only have two ordinances in the real true church, and that is communion and the Lord's, that is the Lord's Supper, communion, and baptism. We've celebrated both in both services today. If you just want to express thanks to God, you can come. And I always know there's some of my brothers and sisters in the room with burdens, challenges, tensions, sadness, maybe even shame. Why would you not come and lay that down before the one who said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me? He said that there would be an ease, that there would be a lightness if we would share with him. You can do that today. As I pray, the altar opens up and we want you to do your business with God right here, right now. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.